Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, trouble at home for Ron DeSantis. He'd be the governor of Florida, and he's in trouble with Florida's black communities. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, is he Trump's chief enabler? What does the recent coup in Gabon tell us about the future of African dynastic leadership? Mitch McConnell freezes yet again. And then his doctor sends a note saying he's okay. And the Texas anti-abortion gambit. I told you they would never stop. Shall we begin? Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, wasn't always in the doghouse with a majority of black Floridians. I mean, he may have never gotten a majority of the black Florida vote, but he wasn't that badly in the doghouse, at least not at first. Not long after being sworn in, DeSantis pardoned four black men wrongly accused of assaulting a white woman some decades earlier. Of course, there was some skepticism since DeSantis, when he was running against a black man, warned, don't monkey this up. That's a direct quote. Over time, the governor has shifted sharply rightward as if don't monkey this up isn't far right enough. And as his presidency has begun to take shape, he has shifted further and further to the right. How has that been made manifest? And these are some, not all, but some of the policies lots of black folks disagreed with, changing the way slavery is taught in the state's schools, stripping diversity and inclusion initiatives, redistricting a black-led North Florida congressional district virtually out of existence, and more, particularly galling, was DeSantis's education officials mandating that students in the state be taught that slavery benefited blacks by teaching them skills. That one drew widespread condemnation both in and out of Florida. Then, a white racist shot and killed three black people in Jacksonville. DeSantis actually showed up at a vigil for the victims last weekend. He got booed, but he did show up. He called the murderer a major league scumbag. He was corrected by a black pastor who called it as it was. Pastor Jeffrey Rumlin said, quote, respect for the governor, but he was not a scumbag. He was a racist. That about sums up black discontent with conservatives. They avoid talking about race even in the face of a racist act, even in the face of naked racism, they don't want to talk about race. They don't want to put it in that context. Now, to be fair, one black Republican stood up for DeSantis. State Representative Kean Michael said some DeSantis policies had actually helped black people. She also praised him for showing up to the vigil in the first place. And to be even more fair, because, you know, I'd like to be balanced about these things. DeSantis did better with black folks the second time around when he ran for re-election than he did the first time around. That proves, if nothing else, that black people are not a monolith. However, his presidential run has been little short of a disaster. He trails Donald Trump by 30 to 40 points, depending on which poll you believe. Worse yet, he hasn't even been able to gain much traction, even though his opponent has been indicted, count him, four times. This is important 
Because if Ron DeSantis is to win a general election, a long shot, if he can get the nomination, low black voter turnout is one thing that will help him. Just ask Hillary Clinton, who got the mammoth share of the black vote, but she also saw black turnout decline for the first time in 20 years, back in 2016. But I get ahead of myself. If Ron DeSantis thinks he can win the GOP nomination, much less the presidency, with a war on woke that is increasingly tired, and most folks see it as being tired, good luck with that one. Now, I saw a report, I'm not sure how true it was, but that when Ron DeSantis was teaching school back in the day, when he was even younger than he is now, he actually taught people, and this was at a boarding school apparently in Georgia, he taught his students that slavery benefited black people on certain levels, and he also apparently believed a revisionist version of the Civil War, and there was a lot of that going around, particularly around the time that the Civil War documentary television series came out. People were, oh, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights, blah, blah, blah. and obviously DeSantis swallowed that foolishness hook, line, and thinker. Oh, hook, line, and sinker, I should say. And now he's in trouble with black folks. But if he can win with a war on woke, if he thinks he can win with a war on woke, good luck with that. Now it's time to talk about Mark Meadows, former White House Chief of Staff. This is a man who has been indicted along with Donald Trump and 17 others in the massive effort to job the 2020 presidential election. He's also a man that author Chris Whipple calls a uniquely dangerous failure in a New York Times op-ed. He's talking, of course, about Meadows' tenure as chief of staff. I don't know whether he was a failure or not. Maybe he was. If you look at Trump, the people around Trump, most of them seem to be failures, but that's just me. Meadows is leading the charge to have his case and that of Donald Trump and all their co-defendants moved from state to federal court. There'll be a decision about that sometime this week. Be that as it may, the op-ed takes a look at the role of the president's chief of staff in a way that few Americans, sadly, are aware of. Not all chiefs of staff have covered themselves in glory over the years. Richard Nixon's White House chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, went to jail for 18 months on a perjury rap. To read Chris Whipple's column, you'd think the chief of staff is either the person that curbs a president's excesses or the president's chief enabler. And make no mistake, you can't be both. Guess which category Meadows falls into? He stands charged with racketeering. Imagine that. A former White House chief of staff who ought to know better stands charged with racketeering. Now, he hasn't been convicted. He's innocent until proven guilty. But he stands charged with racketeering. I mean, Haldeman was only convicted of perjury, not racketeering. Now, racketeering is usually reserved for gangsters. I mean, rac racketeering indictments. It's reserved for gangsters with gigantic pinky rings. But, in this case, a former White House chief of staff. 
How else to explain that infamous late December 2020 meeting when Donald Trump reportedly considered calling out the military to seize voting machines? Trump backed down on that one, although it wasn't necessarily because of Meadows. It was because another one of his enablers, Rudy Giuliani, thought it was a bad idea. Not long afterward, Meadows went to Cobb County, Georgia, where he tried and failed to talk his way into an election audit meeting. This is not what a White House chief of staff is supposed to be doing. Of course, he's now telling anyone who will listen that his enabling was simply part of his job. That, of course, is nonsense. Trying to help a president submarine American democracy is just not part of the job description. Or maybe Meadows just didn't get the memo on that. The list of people who should have known better is littered with people like Sidney Powell and John Eastman, right down to Trivion Cootie, publicist for the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, and the leader of Black Voices for Trump. Nothing like diversity and inclusion, right? But at the end of the day, all roads lead to Donald Trump and his enabler slash stooge, Mark Meadows. Up next, Mitch McConnell and his second freeze in recent weeks. And then, his doctor wrote a letter. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Reiner. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been freezing up just a little bit lately. For the second time, McConnell froze at a news conference, not the greatest optics in the universe. This follows a similar incident last month, when much the same thing took place. A day after the latest episode, the attending physician of Congress issued a statement to the effect that Mitch McConnell was, quoting here, medically clear to resume his schedule as planned. This, of course, has led to all manner of speculation about what is actually wrong with him. Of course, it's also led to a lot of media speculation as to who will take his place if he has to step down or move out of the way. Many say the concussion he suffered earlier this year could be at the root of his freezing problems. There's also the question of whether it was dehydration many strokes, or who knows? Not the doctor who signed off on his wellness. He never examined him. One thing is for sure. When the arch-conservative National Review says it's time to step down, you know you've got problems. McConnell himself has been making calls to his Senate colleagues assuring them it was only dehydration, not a sign of something more serious. As I said after his first freezing episode, McConnell's problem is not just confined to him. Even though pollsters say otherwise, I believe episodes like this could cause voters to look at and question President Biden's fitness to serve a second term. And by the way, he was very quick to well-wish Mitch McConnell. The U.S., by the way, is not the only country with problems regarding aging leadership. In Africa, 
there have been eight coups since 2020. Many of the affected countries have families that have ruled over their countries for decades. The latest is Gabon, where President Ali Bongo Ondimba, winner of a disputed election, was deposed by that country's military. Now, let's be clear. He's 64, and I hate to say only 64, but in political terms, 64 is the new 24. Now, for their trouble, the military has gotten Gabon suspended from the African Union. Now, I don't know how big a deal that actually is, because I really don't know much about what the African Union actually does. And that's not a slight on them. Maybe I'm just being ignorant. But the bottom line is, what does the African Union do that is a big deal that Gabon got suspended? That's not going to... Do you think that the military is just going to up and say, oh, okay, well, in that case, President Ali Bongo, come back. The African Union was going to suspend us. No, not happening. Now, if you look at these kinds of developments globally, and thank God America does not have to deal with the coup d'etat, do we? We see agitation for change and for younger leadership. Again, back here in the States, a recent social media post juxtaposed Mitch McConnell and Mick Jagger, noting they're about the same age. Which one do you think is like more vigorous? And finally, for this episode, how far will some towns in Texas go to stop abortions? The answer may surprise you, or maybe not. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. Imagine this for a moment, if you will. Suppose you live in the state of Texas, and you have a friend, a woman, who doesn't want to have a child for any number of reasons, but let's choose a good one, because her spouse, partner, whatever, is physically abusive, and she just does not want to have his child. So she asks you, resident of Texas, to drive her to New Mexico, where abortions are legal, because essentially abortion is illegal anywhere in the state of Texas. And you start driving local roads, main roads, whatever roads you have to take to get to New Mexico and get to an abortion provider. And next thing you know, you find that you have been sued by a citizen of one of the towns you drove through for so-called abortion trafficking. Sound bizarre? It is bizarre, but it's also true. There are some people in Texas who will do anything, and I repeat, anything, to thwart a woman's right to choose. Take, for example, the people of Llano, Texas. They decided there were too many people using the roads of their town to drive people to states where abortion is legal. Their solution? Create a frenzy around what anti-abortionists call abortion trafficking. What they're trying to do is give citizens the right to sue anyone who helps a woman procure an abortion by driving through their town. Sounds a little bizarre, right? I mean, 
one of the things that would be a little difficult to try and, and do is criminalize that. Because if they're on a, a state or federal highway, there may be other forces, other authorities involved in stopping their ability to actually arrest people for doing this. And how they'd find out is utterly beyond me. But interestingly, Lano and other towns aren't exactly ramming ordinances like this to stop abortion trafficking through their town councils. Even some staunch anti-abortionists worry these efforts are going too far and will in the long run harm their communities. I told you a while back that people who oppose abortion will never stop thinking of new ways to criminalize the procedure. Whether it's tampering with the U.S. mails to stop shipment of abortion pills, to trying to make people who drive women to other states that allow abortion liable by tracking them on local roadways, it's not going to stop until people who support choice wake up and fight back. Oh, and before I go, two proud boys, you know who they are, right? People that were all involved up to their necks in January 6, 2021 the insurrection, the capital, etc. Two of them have been sentenced to long prison terms for their roles in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And I should say, in fairness, the January 6th, 2021 attack on democracy. Their names aren't worth repeating here, but one got 18 years, the other 10. There are hopefully more long bids to come. Justice, in this instance, has truly been served. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well. <laughs>